Today's scripture reading comes out of Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle, battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be open upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let us pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for your, your truths, how they are so uh, available to us in your word, Lord. And I thank you that we are gathered here today to hear these truths, and may they take root in our hearts and go before us in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's uh, now that time of the year, it's, we're all up in some Christmas season. Like there, there is no doubt that we are in the, the full thralls of uh, this, this Christmas time of the year. And so on Monday, uh, me and Jamie, we went out and do what you do at Christmas time. And that is we went to go get a Christmas tree. And uh, let me just say this. When it comes to home decor, decorations, throughout the year or at Christmas time, that's, that's up to Jamie. She can do whatever she wants to. That's more her thing, however little, however much. That's, that's her Except for one thing, the tree. It's going to be at least eight feet tall. It's going to be at least five feet wide. It's going to be full. It is going to be a fat tree, as my mom would call it. I, I don't mess around when it comes to buying a tree. I don't want a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. I don't want this scraggly thing. I don't want an artificial tree with its plastic and polypropylene in my house. I want the real deal. And I am that guy that when I go to the Christmas tree lot, I, I go around with a tape measure. I make sure that it's so many feet tall, so many feet wide, that it's going to fit, but not quite fit, right? You know, because I want it to be big, big sucker. So I measure it. I look at it from every angle. And if there's not one on the Christmas tree lot, I am that guy who tells the workers, get up in the truck. I want to see what else you have in inventory. And I do this, right? And so they start bringing out the trees, and they stand on like, no, 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 cut the net off. You know that net that comes wrapped in it nowadays? Like, no, 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 take that junk off. I need to see it. So they'll cut it off. Nope, next. And so these, like, senior citizen, retired men who work for the Lions Club, volunteer, they're, like, rolling their eyes at me. But I am that guy because I want a very specific tree. And I know it when I see it because I have that Griswold moment where a Shekinah light shines down on the tree. And I'm like, behold, we have found the tree. And so that happened on Monday. Honestly, there was light. And it, was, it was wonderful. You had to be there. And so we found our tree brought it home, and then we engaged in what is my favorite of all the Christmas holiday 
celebration traditions. It is a, a Christmas tradition that was personally handed to me by my own father. He, he taught me the ways. He is the, the master of this very specific, important Christmas tradition. I call it the Festival of Fury. It is when you, un, in an unhinged way, yell and scream at the tree so that it may stand straight and level, <laughs> right? And this doesn't go on for a few minutes. This is hours of screaming and yelling. And after the Festival of Fury, once that I have exercised my God-given dominion over creation and the tree is willing to stand up straight and level, then begins the string of lights. And this is like one of the few things that I get really like nostalgic about. That I, I, this is the thing that brings the kid out in me. Like I love me some Christmas lights. And to me, it, it doesn't make sense unless the tree is a fire hazard. Like, there has to be that many lights strung together for it to be a Christmas tree. So I love my lights on the tree, and, and I don't only love the lights inside the house. I, I, want my, I want lights outside, right? Like the Christmas tree lights that everybody puts out now, which I would say this day and age seems like people maybe have stepped over, like, what is tasteful? Like, like people have gone completely Griswold now. Like, everyone now gets to be Clark Griswold, apparently. So, a couple of years ago, several years ago, um, it's around Christmas time, I'm driving, it, it's at nighttime, I'm on Highway 210, I'm be somewhere between Smithville and Anger, moving, moving or dri driving back to Anger, and I come around a turn, and I see off in the distance, there's this house, and the Christmas lights are on the roof, on the roof, like, who does that, right? Like, on, not, I don't mean, like, on, like, the, the edge, you know, hanging down, the, I mean, like, on the roof, and from where I was coming and driving, it's, it was a cross. I'm like, well, right on. Like, this person gets it. Yeah, like, may our Christmas lights, even if they're on the roof, may it point to Jesus in the gospel. That's the whole point, right? The whole reason of the season is Jesus. So I'm driving, and, but then I start getting closer, and my angle and my point of view changed, and then I realized that it wasn't a cross. It was the bow tie. It was the Chevrolet logo that someone had taken Christmas tree lights and outlined it on their roof painstakingly, thousands upon thousands of lights. I would dare say that that person maybe possibly perhaps has missed the whole point of what Christmas is about. Dare I say, dare I say in the South, that Christmas is not about Chevy versus Ford. <laughs> Dare I say, spoiler alert, that Christmas is not about a rotund, big-boned Scandinavian man in a red winterized tracksuit. I'm not sure that that's really what Christmas is about. I don't think Christmas is really about flying mammals with red phosphorescent noses. Like, I'm not sure what that is all about. I'm, I'm pretty certain that Christmas is actually not about the decorations, and dare I say, not about the actual lights, all the Christmas lights. Though, however, there's one thing about the Christmas lights that I think that they do if we allow them to, that ultimately Christmas is about light. And there's something about the lights that, at least for us, should represent something that in our darkness, there's a light that's coming to the world, Jesus Christ. 
the life of the world. The, the truth is that our world is, in fact, a very dark place. And if we're not careful, if, if we're not paying attention, or maybe even if we are, very easily our lives can become enveloped in all sorts of darkness. I don't know everyone in this room, but honestly, folks, all of us are dealing with dysfunction. Different types of dysfunction to different levels, but we're all dysfunctional. There's no such thing as a normal family. The only normal family is a dysfunctional family. We all have all sorts of issues and problems that we deal with. Uh, to, to various degrees, we're, we're all uh, damaged goods. There, there's stuff that's been done to us in the past by someone, and we've, we're broken, and we're just trying to make it through the day. And, and on top of all that baggage that all, so many of us, most of us, actually have to just carry through our life, the reality is that because this world is dark, it's a scary place. So who, who in here walks around fearful and frightened and stressed and anxious all the time, like, what's next? How am I going to make it through this day? How am I going to make it through this week? How am I going to make it through this month, God? There's this, all of this that's, that's piling on. It's problem after problem, struggle after struggle. And, and, and there are these issues and trials and struggles that come into our life that could literally shipwreck everything about us. So here we go. We're making our way through this life, and this is what we face, and we enter into seasons of darkness. And they can be so dark that we lose all sense of hope. And let me tell you that there is no greater darkness than hopelessness. To get to the point where I see nothing good and nothing good can come out and nothing can happen. There is no greater darkness than that. My, my college roommate from 20 years ago, he recently tried to take his life. He reached a point in his life where he says, I see nothing good, nothing of value, nothing of worth, nothing to live for. And so now there, people intervened and got stopped and people were trying, were trying to speak light into his life. But he reached a place of total despair and gloom and hopelessness. That's that's as dark as it gets. And the good news is that God desires that no one, that none of us would live in darkness. He wants to shine the light of his love and of his grace, of his truth and his wisdom. He wants to shine that light brightly into your heart. And he wants you to live in the warmth and in the comfort of his glory. He wants to, you to enjoy, to actually be glad in the joy and the gladness, the glory of God's radiance and beauty. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus was born to shine the light of God into our hearts. This is the point. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christmas is about light coming into this dark world that we may have hope. So if you have your Bible with you, I, I invite you to uh, open up to the book of Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, it's right in between the book of Song of Solomon and the book of Jeremiah. 
We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will have the verses on the screen. We just always like to invite people to, to bring their own Bible and bring something to write on or write with and, and to make the most of this time, just to learn and, and to, to make this a time where you can just be enriched and grow, grow on your journey. And what we're going to see here in Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 9 is that God does not want you to live in darkness. He does not want you to live a life of darkness. He wants to shine his light so that you may live with hope. So that you may live with hope. So we'll get started. It's around 1000 BC. I'm backing up a little bit just for the sake of context. It's around 1000 BC and the nation of Israel is enjoying what is some pretty significant prosperity. Like, just goodness. Things aren't perfect. They're still having to fight the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, all the ites. They're having to fight all the ites, and there's they're still war and conflict, but things are good. God is with them. God is giving them victory. Things are all right. Things are all right. They're enjoying the land, the promised land that God had given to them, the land flowing with milk and honey. They're in the land. There's produce. There's food. Things are really nice. They're, they're under the reign of King David. King David was a good king, a champion, a warrior. He looked out for the people, defended them. Things are good. This is when uh, he actually, him and his men of valor, they captured Jerusalem. And that's, it's at this point that Jerusalem became the capital of Israel. I mentioned that because it's all in the news now. So this is how far back it goes. So here we go, a thousand years BC, Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel. David dies. His son Solomon takes the throne, and this ushers in what is the golden era of Israel's history. No time before and no time since has there been as much prosperity, wealth, peace, and goodness in the land as during those 40 years of King Solomon's reign. That's the good years. That's when he built the temple. In Jerusalem, when they build the temple in Jerusalem, God's glory, God's presence descended upon that temple. God's people are united and everything is good. Okay. Well, as what happens so often, things went wayward after King Solomon's time. Uh, people began to sin. People's disobedience of God became to, to simmer up more and more. Not just the people, but the leaders and the, the kings and all of this took, took place there in the land. And it, it got so bad that Israel, the nation, the kingdom of Israel, actually split in two. And it became a northern kingdom, which actually became known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which became known as Judah. Because of all the sin, there was this split. And if you were to read the books of First and Second Kings, you'd get tired of hearing the same resume of the kings over and over and over again, with very few exceptions of all the kings of the north of Israel and of the south Judah. It says, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, over and over and over again. Wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, and all the people just followed. The nation just followed suit wherever these evil men would lead. So then things got worse 
over 200 years, two centuries or so, pass by. They're, they're continuing to worsen. And throughout those two centuries, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet trying to get the people to repent, so that, to turn away from the disobedience and turn away from all that, turn back to God, go, go back to God. Clearly, God is patient, right? 200 years. How many of us have patience for 200 years? How many of us have patience for 200 seconds? All right? So clearly, God is a God of steadfast patience, long-enduring patience. And this is what brings us to Isaiah chapter 8. Now it's around 730 B.C., the year 730 B.C., and it's at this point that God calls a man by the name of Isaiah. He raises him up as a prophet, and this is what he tells Isaiah to do. I need you to go to all of my people and tell them that I am bringing judgment upon them all on account of their sin, on account of their constant disobedience and and sin and rebellion, because they won't turn back to me, I am actually going to bring discipline on both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So Isaiah chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Here we go. Isaiah says there that a son will be born. And the son's name is going to be Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I practiced that one. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And what that, what that name, because back in the day, names actually meant something. They, have a, they had a meaning. What that name meant was quick to plunder. Quick to plunder. So the, the verses there, they reference Damascus as a city. Damascus was the capital of a kingdom of Aram. So a, to the northeast of Israel, there's this other little nation there, Aram. Damascus is their capital. Samaria, which is referenced in those verses, refers to the northern kingdom, that kingdom of Israel. There's a region there called Samaria. Aram and Samaria had, had an alliance at the time. They had a political military alliance with one another. What Isaiah is saying in those two verses is that before that little baby with the beat-up name, Maheshalad Hashbaz, before that kid can say mama or dada, Assyria, the brand new superpower in the region, that nation is going to come down and open up a can on the northern kingdom of Israel. They're going to, they're going to come in, they're going to invade, and they're going to attack. They're going to come in from the north. And according to verse 8, they're not going to stop there. It's going to overflow and stretch into the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, how do you want that job? Would you like that gig? Would you want to be Isaiah? To go to an entire nation and say, because you are so sinful and so disrespectful to God and so negligent to the things of God, because of that, God is sending a warring nation, an enemy, to attack and invade. How would you like that job? And really, his, his role, what he's saying, he's like, folks, there is a creator God. There is an almighty, all-powerful Lord of hosts who made everything single-handedly out of nothing. 
There was nothing, and then there was something, and God is the one who took nothing and turned it into something, which in essence is everything. And that God, he demands allegiance and loyalty, fealty to him. But he's not a bully. He's not a tyrant. He's not this this awful dictator. He is kind, and he is good, and he's generous, and he loves you, and he desires what is best for you. He desires what is in your best interest for the here and now, and more importantly, the hereafter. And that God who loves you so much that only wants the best for you, he does have a standard. He's given us a moral standard to live by, to conduct our lives by, and when, not if. When you mess it up, when you muck it up, when you're disobeying, when you do the things you shouldn't do and, and neglect to do the things you should do, when you mess up, just confess it, humbly repent. God will forgive you. He loves you. He's gracious. He is kind. And if you don't heed these words, Israel, if you don't heed his words, the day of reckoning is coming. For God is holy. He is righteous and he cannot abide in sin and he cannot let sin abide. So that's the message that Isaiah had for all this people. And I imagine that there were two main responses that the people had. The first one, anger, right? Some people just got mad. I'm so offended, Isaiah by this message that you have for me. Who are you? Who are you to judge me? Who's God to judge me? I'm mad. It doesn't, I can do whatever I want to, right? There were those people, but I bet the majority of people had this other response. Cluelessness. Like this. What do you mean, Isaiah? Not that bad. Look at the nations around us, Isaiah. Like, if you want to see what real wickedness looks like, look at the other people. They sacrifice their children. Like, they, they have public executions of all sorts. Like, like, those are so seriously wicked people. Like, we're, we're the people of God. We're the Jews. We're the nation of Israel. What are you talking about, Israel, uh, Isaiah? We're not that bad. Most people don't recognize how much sin infiltrates their life. Most of the people of Israel didn't recognize how sinful they were individually or how sinful their entire nation had become. It took place slowly over time. They, they, they started to kind of merge cultures with the people around them. Uh, the great sin of the nation of Israel was actually the sin of syncretism. And what I mean by that is they became synchronized with the, the, the cultures around them so that there was no distinction between them and the others. There was no true believers living out true faith in, in a distinct manner to God. And so over time and over several generations, they blended in in such a way it all became great and murky and so when that happens they didn't realize what had happened it's kind of like the whole thing how do you boil a frog slowly if you if you heat up water and you boil it and you throw the frog in it jumps out if it's nice lukewarm temperature and you put the frog in there and you slowly bring it to a boil it doesn't know and you'll boil it to death it won't jump out ever it's the same thing this is what happened to israel over the course of several generations they slowly boiled themselves into a place of sin that they didn't even recognize that they were boiling. 
Have you ever walked from a bright place into a dark place? I mean, a physical light. What happens? You can't see jack squat, right? You're completely blinded. When you go from like outside, summer, it's August, it's sunny, and you walk into your garage for whatever reason, I mean, you can't see anything. The darkness, oddly, is blinding at, at that point. But if you sit there long enough, what happens? Your eyes begin to adjust. They begin to adapt. All of a sudden, what was bleak blackness is not that dark anymore. Before, you couldn't take a step without stepping into something, and all of a sudden, you actually can see a little bit in the darkness, and you can make your way around the garage. It's the same way with sin. The more we sin and the more we give ourselves over to it, the more accustomed we get to it, we adapt to it to the point we don't even recognize it anymore. In other words, we begin walking down this dark path, and we don't even realize how dark the path is. You follow me? So this is what Isaiah is trying to tell the people. Things are way darker than you realize. And folks, I hate to warn you, they're about to get a lot darker. A lot darker. God is going to send this enemy down to get your attention, to discipline you. Because this is what a loving God does, right? Parents, you love your kids? We don't lovingly beat our kids, but we do lovingly disciple them, right? Like, sometimes it means, hey, I put you in time out. Sometimes it does mean a spanking. Like, there, there's, we do this not because we hate them, but because we love them. It's the same thing with God and, and his people, his children. I'm going to discipline you for your own good because I love you. If I didn't do this, it would actually prove that I didn't love you, but I do. So I'm going to do this for your, for your own good. So God is about to do this. But the thing that we have to recognize in the text is that hope is not gone. Hope is alive. Even in the midst of the darkness, it's about to get a lot darker Hope is there. Look at the end of verse 8. There in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8. Assyria is on the way. It's on the move. War is coming. Look at how that verse ends. It ends with a very unique word, Emmanuel. The word there, Emmanuel, is actually being used of the people of God. See, we know that when we turn to the first page of the New Testament, we know from Isaiah chapter 7 that there'll be a unique son who's born and his name will be Emmanuel. We know that that's Jesus, right? But in this text, the word Emmanuel there is referencing the people of the land. It's, it's a, it means God's people. In other words, God's people, our name is God is with us. Our name together as the collective people of God is Emmanuel because God is with us us. That's our name. God is with us. There is hope in this dark world because God is with us. In the midst of the darkness that we all face and endure, God is with us. In the midst of losing a loved one, God is with us. In the midst of you losing your job, God is with you. In the midst of cancer and pain and the horrors that this life brings and accident, God is with us. In the midst of the grief and the agony of being beaten and battered and abused, God is with us. When an enemy, when 
all the enemies of the world would encamp around us, God is with us. And even when God lovingly brings loving discipline upon us because of our own sin, God is what? With us. This is the hope of the text. Isaiah saying, this is coming, but God is with us. God is with us. Look at verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples. And the peoples there is now referring to these other, this other nation, these people, these non-believers that seek to attack and do harm to God's people. He says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Hey, you can weaponize all that you want. You can get rowdy all that you want. You can bring whatever you want, but you are the ones that will be shattered. Take counsel together. You guys can plot together all you want, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. Take hope in these words. If you're here this morning, I want you to hear hope in the words of Scripture. That in the worst of times, God is with you. God is with you. He is with you. He is with you. Anything, whatever would come your way, cannot stand against you if God is with you. And that is the wonderful promise this morning. So I, I hope that you find hope that in the midst of darkness, the light of God's goodness and love and glory can shine and illumine your heart, your mind, your soul, and your life. There is one truth I want to camp out on just a little bit here. In Isaiah 8, I want us to recognize who the real enemy is. There is a, a tendency for some to say, well, it was Assyria. Like Assyria was the, the worst of enemies. It actually wasn't Assyria, this enemy that was coming. The, the real enemy, the worst enemy, was the people themselves. God's people are God's people's worst enemy. Folks, I, I know we live in the 21st century in our enlightened culture. Let me just tell you, the devil is real. The devil is real. And scripture tells us that Satan roams around like a prowling lion seeking for people to destroy and to devour. Let me tell you, as bad and jacked up as he is, he's not our worst enemy. You know that people lie to me all the time? All the time. To a pastor. <laughs> Probably because I'm a pastor. I've become so cynical. I, 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 you ever watch the, sh the show House? Like one of the, the mantras of the show House is everyone lies. I actually believe that. I, I don't think that's cynical. I think that's realistic. I think everyone lies. And so many people lie to me. And the thing is, no one lies more to me than me. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can discern it? Jeremiah 17, 9. I lie to me way more than anyone else. All of you combined could ever lie to me. Every day. And there are some people that can do some great harm to me, and there's some people in here who've experienced 
awful, terrible harm at the hands of someone. I get that. But let me tell you that no one can harm me more than I can harm myself when I wander away from God. The greatest harm that can ever be done to me, I do it to myself when I walk away from God. And no one can make me do that. That's a decision I make on my own. I choose, I'm going to go this way, and no one can make me do that. I do it. I am my own worst enemy. You're your own worst enemy. It's nothing out there. It's nothing else. And that's what Israel did to themselves. They were their own worst enemy. They sinned. They continued to sin. They wouldn't confess it. They wouldn't repent. They kept on at it, and they wandered and wandered away from God, and they did that to themselves. So I, I've got like a little two-year-old at home, <clears throat> little baby Eve. And uh, she's in this little phase now. It's kind of sort of cute, kind of. It's annoying too, though. Um, where she runs in a closet, a dark closet, and she shuts the door. And then she starts crying. It's dark, it's dark, it's dark. I'm like, okay. And so and she can't open the door. So... All right, open up, and a few minutes later, goes back in the closet. Starts crying, yelling, and screaming again. Can't open it up. It's scary, it's scary, it's scary. Like she can't, and she keeps doing it, which is what's so crazy and so, fr so frustrating because she's not realizing that she's doing it to herself, that she's the one on her own. Like I'm not throwing her in there. She on her own walks in. She's grabbing the knob pulling it short. She knows, shut. She knows it's dark. And she's crying and yelling and screaming and begging for help. Stop doing this to yourself. <laughs> Folks, this is what we do when we walk away from God. No one makes us. We're just the ones that are wandering into the closet. And then we wonder, why? What's going on? Help me, Jesus. And Jesus loves us. So he's like, all right, come on out. And then two days later, we're back in there again. Ah, it's dark. It's scary. <laughs> Folks, I know. I, listen, I, I don't want to be trivial about what some of us have endured at the hands of others because there, there's, there's some battering and some abuse and some things that we endure at the hands of some people that's just heinous and horrific, and many of us will spend an entire lifetime trying to recover from various traumas that we would go through. But we have to realize that the majority of the time, the reason I find myself in darkness, it's not because of what someone did to me. It's because I'm wandering away from the light of God. I do it to myself and the reality is that sin has severe consequences. Disobedience to God never, it never pays off. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. It says, And they will look to the earth, to so these people that refuse to repent, they refuse to turn to God, these people that enjoy the darkness, actually, they will look to the earth, but behold, what are they going to find? Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So those who love the world and the things of the world, 
more than God and the things of God, these people are only going to find gloom and anguish and darkness. But folks, that is not what God desires for any of us. He does not desire gloom or darkness. He desires grace and glory. He desires to shine the light of his grace into our lives. So then that brings us to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, where it says, But there will be no gloom, no gloom for her who was in anguish. In former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What Isaiah is saying in that verse is, you know what? You've brought this on yourself. You brought this upon yourself. God is bringing discipline. This this war in nation is coming. But in that verse, God promises to turn darkness into light. He promises in that verse to turn and transform gloom into glory. Glory is going to come out of this. And how is that going to take place? It's going to take place through the prophecy that is given in verses 2 through 6. And I'm going to read these, but as I read these verses, I want you to note something. These verses were written over 700 years before they were fulfilled. And they're written in the past tense. Why? The reason why is that when God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. It is absolutely certain. It is so certain that though given seven centuries earlier, it's given as if it's already taken place. Look at verse 2. The people who walked, who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You, God, you, Lord Almighty, you have multiplied the nation. You increased its joy. They, meaning God's people, they rejoice. No more gloom, no more sadness. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In other words, God replaces, replaces gloom with joy. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, you have broken As on the day of Midian, what that means is that God removes our burden. He removes our oppression. He removes our difficulty. He removes our angst. And he replaces it with that joy, that rejoicing. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. In other words, war and hostility are things of the past. No more war. Peace. Peace. And all of that because of a light. No more gloom because of a light. No more darkness because of a light. No more oppression because of a light. No more war because of a light. No more death because of a light. So what is the light? And we know that it's not a what. It's a who. Verse 6. For to us, A child is born to us. A son is given. 
This is no ordinary child. This is a reference to the Messiah, to the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 tells us that a virgin would supernaturally conceive and bear a child, a son, and his name would be Emmanuel. At the same time that, that Isaiah was on the scene, there was this other prophet. His name was Micah. And Micah, in, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he said, and this unique child, this unique son, he would be born in Bethlehem. Both prophecies fulfilled 700 years later. Mary, a virgin, gave birth to a son. His name is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. And not only that, he was born where? In Bethlehem. God is not the God of near, near or, or close cause. He's a God of clear precision and accuracy. Bethlehem is a tiny little town. And he says that's where he would be born. And that is exactly what took place. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, we're told that uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, there are these areas, uh, there would be particularly dark places. And it would be out of these dark places, these dark lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, that this unique, glorious light would shine from. Well, Naphtali and Zebulun are two of the tribes of Israel. They're part of the northern kingdom in the north. They actually are part of a region called Galilee. And within Galilee, there's this little town known as Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but grew up where? Guess, Nazareth. Zebulun and Naphtali were particularly known for their darkness. And God said, it is out of that area that a light would shine. And that's where Jesus' ministry began. In Zebulun and Naphtali. Folks, this is what we celebrate at Christmas centuries of prophecy fulfilled in this unique son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our God, our King, our Creator, our Savior, the light of the world. This is what we celebrate. He came. He came from heaven. He came to earth. He became one of us. He was born of that virgin, so he took on flesh. And so divinity and humanity were married together in this unique individual, 100% God, 100% man in Jesus Christ. He lived among us. He walked among us. He was tempted in every way, just like you are. Tempted in every way, but he, unlike us, never sinned. He lived the sinless, perfect life that we're supposed to live. And then he went to a cross. And on that cross, he lovingly sacrificed himself for you, for your good. He said, I will pay the price of your sin, the price that you cannot pay. I will bear that for you. On that cross, he was cast into outer darkness Scripture would tell us, and he did it, that we may be spared, that we may be called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus came to shine the light of God and give us a new life, that we may enjoy the blessed life of walking in his grace. I want you to know that no matter what you have done in the past. No matter how bad, 
how bad you think it is, no matter how bad you, it may actually be. There's nothing that you've done that outsins God's capacity to be forgiving. You cannot outsin the love of God. No matter how dark a road you have walked, and no matter how long you have walked down that dark path, the light of God can shine into your heart and redeem it all, restore it all, make it all new, and give you a new, fresh take on life. So have you received the light of Christ have you received that into yourself? Have you given yourself over to this Jesus who is the light of the world? That's what we were created for. That's the blessed life that he says, I want to give you. It's a life knowing him, loving him, serving him, worshiping him, and walking in all of his ways. And it's worth it. It is worth it. Our tendency is that we want to follow these things down here. We chase after these things down here. And everything down here leaves us wanting. Everything down here disappoints us. Everything down here, y'all, breaks, burns, corrodes, crumbles, deteriorates, dies, decays, erodes, expires, fades, fails, molds, rusts, rots, gets stolen, gets eaten by moths, gets old, gets tired, wears out wears down everything except for Jesus except for Jesus look at verses 6 and 7 the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is good. He is right. He is just. He is merciful. He's kind. He is compassionate. He's a generous, wise benevolent king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and his reign of peace will never end, ever. It will never end. It is not just, it is not one ever, two ever, three ever. It is all four of the evers. It is forever. No end. No end. And he graciously invites each and every one of us. You want in? You want light? You want love? You want peace? You want it? Come on. Who wants in? Come on. Plenty of room. Plenty of room. Got a nice chair for you, everything. Nice spread for you. It'll be nice. Come on. Who wants in? That verse ends by saying, the zeal of the Lord will do this. Don't miss out that that tells us that it's all a gift of grace. It's not that we do it. Not we conjure it up. We don't muscle through it. We don't have to be good enough. We don't work for it. The zeal, the passion, the love of God, he gives it. He does it. He fulfills it all for us. All we have to do is receive it. It is a gift. I always like to tell people that a gift isn't a gift until it's received. 
I can go shopping all day and buy my wife something nice and wrap it up and say, here you go. And if she never opens it, it never actually is a gift. It's not until it's received. The gift of God must be received, opened up, played with, put on, enjoyed. Mom grew up in Honduras, um, not even in the city. She grew up in Ocotepeque. That takes about 40 years to learn to say. It is a small, tiny, remote mountain town. And uh, so it's already like a developing nation. She's on the back end of it. No, there's no power electricity where she grew up. Like, this is old school. They didn't have electricity in the house, let alone any streetlights anywhere. So she tells this story of where one night she's walking on this dirt road with a few of her sisters, and they're going somewhere. And uh, it's dark. There's no streetlights. But there's just enough moonlight that they can see kind of sort of where they're going, you know, like the next step and so forth. And as they're walking, they come across this huge gaping hole in the road. So... The only way to get across was, I mean, they had to, like, get down, get down on their butts and climb down, like, into the hole and make their way across and that kind of thing. So that's what they do. They got down, and they're trying to climb into this hole. But they can't because it wasn't a hole. It was a shadow. Just imagine that. Like it was an optical illusion. See, that's what happens when we walk in the dark. We can't tell the difference between a shadow, a hole, a pitfall, a crevasse, a cliff. Folks, there's no need for us to walk around in darkness, in the danger of darkness. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of the of life. If we don't have Jesus and his light, we will go the wrong direction. We'll step into the pitfalls. We'll shipwreck our lives. Things will not go well. We're going to end up hurting ourselves, hurting the people around us. But Jesus says, you need not live in darkness. I will be light. I will shine my light into your life. I will guide your your steps. And what I love there about John chapter 8, beyond that, is that Jesus specifically says, who follows me. He says in that verse, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follows. It is those who actively seek God in his kingdom. Those who actively live out their faith. Those who actively try to follow God's instructions for their lives. It is they, it is us, who will live in the light of Christ. But that's hard, right? So I got to follow? Because that's, that's not easy. That's not natural. That's uncomfortable and extremely difficult. So that's why we also need to fellow. See, to follow, you also need to fellow. To follow Jesus, you need fellow believers around your life that will help you to grow in Christ-likeness. Following requires 
fellowing with others who also have the light of Christ in them, that we may help each other, teach each other, that we may live in hope, that we may live in light, and that we may not stray off of the path. We need each other to say, hey, no, yeah, that's just a shadow. Keep going. We need some people to say, no, 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 that's a hole. Watch out. Come on, let's go this way. So in about a month, the week of Monday, January 8th, we relaunch our A-teams, is what we call them. There are small group Bible studies where we get into smaller groups and we open up the Bible and it's a safe space where we could ask questions and, and wrestle with things and be open and transparent and let other people speak into us and us speak into them. And this is what we need. This is what we need. We're not meant to do this by ourselves. We are, folks, Emmanuel, God with us. His light is in us. So we need to help each other's light to shine brighter. So I ask you that over the next few weeks that you would consider making this a priority as a New Year's resolution. That as you celebrate Christmas and this wonderful celebration of light, to know that it's not just about trees and trinkets, but it's about living out the light that God has placed in us. Living out in the glory of God. So I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes and to enter into a time just of reflection and meditation and just think about what it is that you have heard this morning. What is it that God would ask you to do? What step would God ask you to take? If you're here and this is the first time that you're kind of hearing the gospel and, and you're realizing just the amazing grace of God and, and how he's willing and, and wanting to forgive you, but you've never experienced his grace, you can do that now. You just where you're seated. You don't have to stand up. We're not going to ask you to even walk forward. In the privacy of your own heart, call out to God. Ask for his mercy and forgiveness. Receive the light of Christ. you're here this morning and you find yourself hopeless, just know that things are not hopeless. God offers hope upon hope. Whatever financial difficulty, whatever physical ailment, whatever broken relationship, whatever thing from the past that is haunting you, there is more than enough grace to heal you and to set you on a clear path. If you're here this morning and you've kind of been walking down a, a path, a dark one, kind of pursuing certain sin, God loves you. He'll forgive you of all of it if you would just turn back, just give your heart back to him. Or maybe for the first time. Lord, Father, I thank you so much that you not leave us desperate in gloom and anguish, but Lord, you desire good for us, for us to 
reflect your glory and to walk in your ways, Lord, for us to know the blessed life, to be forgiven of our sin, Lord, and to receive a, a whole new life of knowing you and the comforts of your presence and your power and your peace. And I thank you that you've made it easy. You made it simple for us, Lord, that it is simply by faith. It is believing in your Son and giving our lives to follow. Thank you that you did all the hard work, Lord. You sent your Son, Jesus. You went to the cross. You died for us and you were raised on that third day proving that you are conqueror and victor. And now, Lord, we have an opportunity to, to embark on this life of light, this holy life, distinct and different. Lord, shine your light in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.